And here we are, back again, back to Tanya again, after a few week hiatus. And God willing, we will be pushing our way through, pushing our way through Tanya as we continue here. And I want to welcome those who are also new, joining the course. Not, it's not really a course, right? This is... This is real, real full-on, real authentic Jewish learning, taking a good text and just, just working our way through it, trying to understand it. Sometimes, sometimes it's going to be a struggle. Sometimes we're going to read and we're not even sure what we're reading. It's too deep. And that's, that's, that's part, of the, it's part of learning. Okay. And I want to make a little note that I spoke with some of you about this already. Um, the Zoom option for the tiny classes is not going anywhere, especially we, we, we have some people here from out of state as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's important that it's inclusive and if somebody is traveling or not local, they should be able to join, which is always wonderful. But I want to, I feel it's the right time, you know, to build back up the, uh, the in-person element as well. So God willing, we're going to be doing it in person as well. And uh, I think it's more Hamish, we get to have more, more conversation. It's less top down. You know, it's a lot harder to kind of get natural conversation on Zoom. So in person, but the but don't worry for all those of you here on Zoom, we still see you. You're part of our. You're right around our table, and uh, I don't want you to feel like uh, like you're sitting in second class. Okay, <clears throat> where are we holding? We are in the middle of chapter two of Tanya, which means we are just just beginning to really get into the uh, into the meat of Tanya here, and okay, so some of you, you know, this is your first time even joining the Tanya classes, and even if not, it's been a while, right, it's been seven weeks since we, uh, since we've been doing this last, and uh, so let's refresh our memories a little bit, I want to give a very, very, very brief overview on some key points that are necessary for today's class. And of course, I would uh, I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, maybe on your own, between this class and next class, go back and review from the beginning of the chapter, maybe even already chapter one. Do a little review on your own. And um, as well, if you really want to do it properly, all of the previous classes are up online. The videos are on YouTube. The audio is on any podcast platform. So go back if you missed any of the previous classes. Um, and if you want some specific recommendations of which classes you should listen to specifically, email me and I'll let you know. So here's, here's what we're doing here in Tanya. Here's what we got. So first of all, what is Tanya? Tanya is a book that was authored a bit over 200 years ago by the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who passed away in when did he pass away? I think 1803, 1802, 1803. So it was published before he passed away in the late 1790s. This book was published. It was a groundbreaking book. We did a whole class about this. Our very first class was Introduction to the Tanya. And the Tanya is on the one hand, a book of Jewish mysticism, right? We call it Kabbalah. It's a book of Hasidism. But more importantly, it's a practical book, right? So it's a book which is taking deep mystical ideas but all for the purpose of helping us uh, live a more meaningful life, a more purposeful life, to get more in touch with our souls, understand our life's purpose, um, 
And that's what the Tanya is. And the, the starting point of the journey of Tanya is with the idea that every Jew has two souls, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion already be, even before that. Uh, we, we learned the introduction. That took a few classes, right? The author's introduction. We also, uh, even chapter one, it took a while to get into this concept, but Tanya really kind of hits the road running with the concept, which came at the very end of chapter one, every Jew possesses two souls. One soul is what we call the natural soul or the animal soul, right? which doesn't mean it's the soul of an animal. It means it's a soul which is animal-like. What are the instincts of the of this soul? It's primal instincts, it's survival instincts, ego-centered, self-centered, which is a very, uh, we all know that soul very well, right? When we're hungry, when we're tired, when, uh, when we uh, feel our ego, when we get offended by something, right? That is all an expression of that soul, when, right? Seeking pleasure, we get upset, all these things. And then in chapter two, in the chapter that we're up to, the author of it said, but we also all have a second soul. Every Jew also possesses what we call a godly soul, a divine soul, which is the total opposite of the animal soul. This is a godly soul. It's selfless. It is good in its very core. And not just good, but it's spiritual. It's holy at its core. And at the beginning of chapter one, which we did in the very last class, which was class number seven, right? This is class number eight. Up to class number eight of Tanya. All right. Is we, the author gave us a few different sources that help us understand what is, what is the soul? What does that mean? And we, when we speak about the soul, we mean the godly soul, right? There's two souls. There's an animal soul. There's a divine soul. And every single Jew has it, right? From the, from the holiest Jew, from the highest level Jew to the very lowest level Jew, whatever that is, right? We're not here to decide who's high and who's low, but no matter where on the, on the, no matter what type of Jew you are, every Jew has this divine soul. And I just want to look with you just to refresh ourselves. Let's look at the very first page of chapter two, which is, which is page 31. Chapter, th page, you know, it actually doesn't even have a page number. First page of, first page of chapter two, it's a page before 32. Page before 32 is page 31, right? Logic dictates. So, the way the Alter Rebbe, the way the Tanya speaks to us about the soul is, the, the, the second soul of a Jew, is that it's a piece of God, literally. Peace of God. Every single one of us has a peace of God. How you doing, Max? Come on in. All right. <laughs> Just in time. There's a peace of, we all have a peace of God within us. And let's look. I want to read a little bit together. Look at the very last paragraph of page 31. All right, let's read this because it's going to be important as we get into today's, into today's piece of Tanya. All right, Max, let's get you some food. All right. Want a coffee? I'd love a coffee. Yeah? Yeah. So go to the pickup machine. Okay. There's food involved if you're coming in person. Why didn't I know that? All right. You'll come next time, Yulia. Now now you'll know. 
We, we, we take good care of you if you come here in person. Rabbi, are you working? Are you working out of the new chapter two that you sent us? Is that what yes. you're talking? Okay, yes, I sent you this morning a uh, uh, a chapter two handout. It's not that different, but I, I updated the handout. So let's read the bottom page 31. All right. And again, we already learned this last class, but this is important for today's class. So what does this mean that we have a peace of God within us? Right? There's this very deep relationship. There's a peace of God within every Jew. So here's, let's read a little bit of Tanya. Here we go. This intimate connection between the soul and God is depicted in the teaching of the Midrash. The Midrash says, the Jewish souls have arisen in the mind of God before the creation of the world. This is the first idea, which is a cryptic text. What does that mean? We have arisen in the mind of God. Keep that in mind. We have arisen in the mind of God. Soon that's going to make sense. We're going to make sense out of that in a moment. Let's continue reading. An additional source depicts this intimate connection as a parental relationship. As the verse states, Israel, my firstborn son, you are children to God, your God. Here we see there's many verses in Scripture, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, where we see God speaking about the Jews as my children. It's again, so this gives us another, another metaphor, another sense of imagery. What's a deep connection between a Jew and God? We have, two, we have two imageries over here. We have arisen in the mind of God, and we are God's children. Okay, one more paragraph. Let's read. And this paragraph starts giving some clarity to these two sources. We have arisen in God's mind, and we are God's children. So here it goes. The explanation of these descriptions, just as a child, is derived from the brain of the father, so too, do you want milk? No. So too, the soul of each person in Israel is derived from God's thought and wisdom, so to speak. Okay, let's let's explain this briefly. When you come in person, we got you covered. <laughs> Good to know. But that's how that also works. Every child. We're not just our parents' children, and our children are not just our children, but it's, it's, what does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to have a child? A child is a piece of you. You want to pick it up? Pick it up so that it doesn't get caught by the wire. All right, we got wires here. You know, in, in rabbinical school, I was not taught how to run Zoom classes and how to technology and what to buy and how to buy and how to do setup. But we're but we're figuring it out, right? It's working out. That was the olden days. There was no Zoom. Right, right. Today, <laughs> it, listen. But in, in rabbinical school, hey, Leva. He felt it. But in rabbinical school, I was taught. Everyone talking about babies. He wants to come say hi. Leva, how are you? Say hi. This is Label Dubov, everybody. For those of you who are at his bris, he's a little bit older now. Okay, you're gonna join us? You're gonna be good? Yes. If you're gonna be good, you could stay here. Should, should, should I hold? All right, okay, I'll, I'll hold on to him for a minute. Oh, all right, I'm making trouble. You wanna, you wanna pen? Let's close it. I'll close it for you. I'll eat it. Okay, yeah, get a picture. All right. Here's how it works What's a child? 
a child is a gift from God, but it doesn't come in a box, right? Where's a child come from? A child is literally a piece of his or her parents. We are all literally a piece of our parents. Our children are literally a piece of us. Okay, Kabbalah says something very, very interesting. The most original source of a child, we all know what a child looks like when a, when a child is born, right? After, after nine months. But, that, but that's, so, that's already very late in the process, right? This baby has already been cooking for nine months. What is the very, very first step of the child? The very earliest source of the child, Jewish mysticism says, it's a Kabbalistic idea, is comes from the brain of the father. And very specifically, the first initial step, of course, of a baby's creation, right? The cause of conception is that there is a cell, a, a right, the drop of seed from the father. And that drop of seed, Kabbalah says, contains energy from the brain. There's an energy that derives from the head of the father, the brain of the father. And that spiritual energy lives within the physical matter of the drop of seed of the father. And that's where a child comes from. Oh. So now we understand what it means when it says the Jewish people have arisen in the mind of God. All right, ladies, I'm going to take this back. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> yeah, everything goes in the mouth. So too, this is what it means. The Jewish people are God's children. And we have arisen in God's mind the same way a child, where do we come from? Where does a, where, where does a child come from? From the father's mind. And okay. That was, this is a key idea from the beginning of time, from the beginning of chapter two. The Alter Rebbe, this is where we're up to now. Let's, let's get to today's, um, to today's piece. The Alter Rebbe then asked a question. All right, now here's a question. And you'll tell me if you think it's a good question. All right? <laughs> let's think about it. Let's think about it. All Jews come from the exact same place. We are all a piece of God. The question that the author asks here is, are all Jews equal? Are all Jews the same? Are all souls the same? What do you say? I'm looking around the table, we're not all the same. We're not all the same. All look different. What do you mean we're not? So first of all, so let's not even talk physically. In general, physical mirrors spiritual reality. So usually whatever's true on the physical level is also true spiritual, right? It's all the same. It's the same universe. So physically, we all look different, right? There's no two people with the same, with the same fingerprints, no two people with the same. We, we all look different. We'll never find two people that are really the, the exact same. There's, just, there's tremendous diversity within humanity. And it's by design. It's by design that way. Thomas speaks about the phenomena and how hard God has to work to make so many versions of the same human being. We're all the same and the variations are so minor and yet we're so different. It's a tremendous art of God. The infinite God could make an infinite 
different variations of human beings. You'll never find two throughout all of history that are the same. Unbelievable, huh? Okay. But spiritually, it's the exact same thing. We're not going to read it inside now again, but the author spoke about the phenomenon that there's different levels of souls. There's diversity within souls. So you could have a soul. Certain souls are just more powerful souls. Certain brains work better. Certain people have better, I don't know, emotional intelligence. Some people are physically stronger. Some people are physically... Some souls work better than others. Not to say that those souls don't work good, but there's simply levels of souls. For example, there are people that they're born with souls which have tremendous potential. They could be great scholars. They're very spiritually in tune. You know, they're, they're just naturally there. They could, they could reach great spiritual heights. You know, it's relatively easy or accessible to them. And then you have certain souls that struggle spiritually. Their souls are just not as spiritually sensitive. And there you kind of have this idea. There's different layers of souls, different levels of souls. So the altar asks a very simple question. If we are all equally a piece of God, why does my soul not look like your soul? Why do we find differences between souls? That's the question. father and child not all children look the same huh not a, they're all different right at the same time not every child comes from the same drop unless unless you're identical twins which in that case they're pretty much the same they are <laughs> so our case in point right. if you take an apple if you take an apple and you cut it up into 100 pieces every piece is going to be kind of the same same taste same texture yeah you know different parts of the apple maybe are a little bit different but Relatively speaking, you should really be getting the exact same product, right? So why, if we all have a piece of God, why is it that there's different levels within the Jewish people? Now, I want to teach a rule when you're learning a Hasidic text, all right? And this is going to be very important also for the rest of Tanya. <clears throat> the point of the question is not for the question. The point of the question is for the answer. Which means the author Rebbe doesn't introduce any questions unless he wants to introduce that question. And the reason why he's asking the question is like that he could bring us to a deeper understanding of this topic. And the way he gets us there is through asking a question. So I'll tell you honestly, it's probably not that difficult to answer this question. If we wanted an answer for the question, okay, we could find an answer. But the author is asking this question to introduce to all of us a very deep understanding of our souls. So we have this idea. This is a question, right? In brief, for all a piece of God, why are we not all the same? Okay. So what the author is going to do, the author is going to say, well, let's do it like this. Scripture, the Torah says that our souls, our relationship with God is analogous analogous or analogous 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 okay is analogous to a father and son relationship children so let's let's dig a little bit deeper into how children get developed the evolution of a child 
And that will be our metaphor. And once we kind of break down and understand how a child gets developed, let's apply that to souls. And what this is going to do is it's going to give us a whole new understanding, a very, very deep understanding in, uh, in, in the nature of our souls, how, how our souls get developed, what it means to be a Jew. It's very powerful. So we are on page 34. Let's do some inside reading. All right, let's do this. We are in the middle of page 34, right? A little bit under the middle. Where, where it says the explanation. So here we go. The explanation, the evolution of a child. And I just want to remind all of you that in the English over here, anything that's bold is a literal translation of Tanya. The, the regular printed text, right, is just uh, what we call the interpolated commentary to help us, because the Tanya is a very dense text. So if you just read a literal translation, it becomes very overwhelming. It's very difficult to... So I'm sure you'll, you'll see on your own that uh, the, the additions in the, in the regular printed text is uh, pretty helpful. Okay, so let's read inside. But if all souls have the same exalted source, how are we to explain the huge differences between them? So to answer this question, the Tanya draws again on the brain slash seed slash child metaphor we encountered earlier. So here we go, let's read. This can be explained by expounding on the above metaphor of a child, which is derived from the seminal root drop rooted in the father's brain. Okay. Let's I first want to let, let's talk a little bit a little bit outside. Let's think a little bit about the development, the creation of a child. Here's how it works. We all know, we all know, we're all there, we all know the feeling, right? It's one of the most powerful moments of life, right? The cries of Mazel Tov, and a new baby is born, right? When one of our own children are born. And it's unbelievable. You meet your child for the very first time, right? And it's amazing, a brand new creation, brand new child. And it's always, you know, a parent, it's like, it always, you're in awe of the fact that, like, wow, I, we created this? <laughs> Where is this coming from? It's unbelievable. You know, nine months ago, this thing wasn't even anything. And all of a sudden, just a full, a full grown human being. So where indeed do children come from? Let's back it up. Let's back up the process. The child that's emerging from the womb is really already in development nine months. It's already being in, it's right. It's already in existence for, for nine months already. So what is the original source of the child? What is drop number, what, right? What, what's step number one of this child? What's phase number one of the child? So as we just learned earlier, the earliest phase of the child is as a drop. One singular, indivisible, tiny, a cell, a drop, a nothing. One drop from the father. And it's so interesting. Think about the contrast. Compare these two phases of a child. Phase one, you have a singular, indivisible root, a, co a, a core, 
of what this child is. And what's the child at that stage? A drop from the father. And specifically, the Tanya tells us it's a drop from the father's brain. Brain matter. You're not sure about that, right? Well, that's a determination of where it came from. Well, we all, well, okay. So we're not. It's an idea. <laughs> it's not, so it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it doesn't mean that it comes from, what does it mean that it comes from the brain? It doesn't mean physically. I don't think it means that it's a physical piece of brain matter. It's a, it's a spiritual energy that comes from the brain, originates from the brain, that is enclosed within the seed of the father. And that energy is the, create, is the power of creation. The potential to create new life comes from that. It's, it's, it's not a seed that you could, right? So of course we know there's a cell, right? There's what you could see under a microscope. But within that, there's a spiritual energy, which that's the real source of the child. It's not even in physical form yet. That's what Jewish mysticism says. So the earliest source of the child is yet yeah, is in the brain of the, is 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 a piece of the brain, a spiritual a spiritual drop from the brain. And here you have all of a sudden a full body, full diversity. How many cells are in the human body in a baby? Trillions, like thirty trillion, I think. Can you imagine that? One cell turning into 30 trillions with all these diverse body parts. You have a head and all the specific parts of the head. You have hands, you have feet, toes, internal organs. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable, right? So you have these two very different, very different, radically different realities of a child. A child that has a mere tiny indivisible drop, a core, which comes from the father. And then you have a, uh, all of a sudden this full human being. So here's my question for you. How does that happen? Is the drop from the father a mini human being? Like a really, you know, you, you, can, you, there's like, you could buy in the store these things. You know what I'm talking about? You, uh, it's like very small and you put it into water and it expands. You know, these like the, they, they sell these toys for kids. What are they called, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they're little sponges. Right? <laughs> it's like, right, it's like a sponge and you put it, you put it in what? Is, is, that, is that what's happening in pregnancy? No, meaning, no, meaning it's, it's not that there's a very, very tiny baby at day number one. There's no baby. It's, it's a singular core. It's one cell. And yet every single part of this child comes from this, from this cell. Now, you're all looking at me and saying, what's the big deal? <laughs> this is life, right? Basic biology, right? But it's a very big deal. We have, we have to appreciate the contrast of these two phases. In one phase, you have this tremendous diversity of body parts. Think about the diversity within ourselves. One cell, we all started as one cell. And what did that one cell create? from the most sensitive and most elevated parts within a human being, like our brain, down to our toenails. They were created from the exact same thing. How does that happen through pregnancy? Let's read a little bit. We're on the bottom paragraph of page 34. And the author is gonna break down for us a few ideas here. This is the metaphor, this is the analogy. When we understand the creation of a child, we'll be able to apply that also to 
to, to our soul's development, the, the source of our soul. Let's read. Even the child's toenails are formed from the very same drop of seed as a child's higher faculties, right? If you scrape the DNA from a toenail and you scrape the DNA from brain matter, it's the exact same, exact same genetic build. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. How do you have that? So let's continue reading. Page 35. This is achieved through a nine-month gestation in the mother's womb. It takes nine months to create this process, during which time the seminal drop, which is derived from the father's brain, is progressively downgraded and transformed to the point that even the child's nails are formed from it. Let's talk about this for a moment. So the beginning of a child is, right, as we said, this one drop from the father, an indivisible core. A singular point with tremendous potential. Nine months later, it's a full body. Let's talk about the process, because the process is where the, all the magic happens. What's the first thing to develop in pregnancy? The very first thing, right? Conception happens. Embryo. There's an embryo. And then what is literally the first body part that begins developing? Any doctors here? The head? Dr. Do Dr. Joel, you got any insight for us? What's the very first thing, you know? I looked this up just to make sure oh, I know what I'm I, talking I, about. Huh? Maybe the brain, I'm not sure. That, that's, yeah, the nervous system, which is the brain. The very first functioning part of the body that that... And I think it happens within the first three days. Three days in already. It's the very first day. The brain starts firing up. Unbelievable. Later on comes the heart, but it's an embryo, right? It's not even a fetus yet. It's not, it didn't even develop into anything yet. But the brain is right away there. Okay. And then, of course, the brain keeps on developing and all this, this, the spinal cord. What's the last thing to develop? Nails, here and nails, right? Am I right on that? Anybody? Anyone, anybody disagree? The last thing is, is nails, here and nails. It happens in the ninth month. In the ninth month is when the nails form. Here's my question for you. Why does the brain come first and why nails last? And I have another question for you. Were the nails simply waiting in line to be formed and their turn was in the eight, is, was in the ninth month? Or did it actually, does it take nine months to create nails? What do you say? I want you to think about that. Is it just that in the process of gestation, you develop one body part at a time and it's a pretty kind of uh, efficient system, you know, right? You slowly make your way, the important organs, the important internal organs, you slowly build a body around it. Or is it that it literally takes nine months to create a nail? What do you say? It's gotta be the first. It's gotta be the first, we're just waiting online. Because, I mean, you've gotta develop all the vital parts and you're not gonna use the energy that is being used to create a brain and, you know, a liver and all these things you need for existence uh 
to make nails until you're nearly done with something that can survive outside of the Right, body. exactly. Meaning it makes no sense to make nails the first month. What are you going to do? Are you going to have nails? And where are you going to put all those nails? Right, it makes sense. You first kind of slowly develop a human being. And then when you know when you have a full human being with hands, with fingers and legs and, and toes, okay, now you can put on nails. So I want to share with you a very deep idea. And you see this in the wording over here. Kabbalah says, Nails don't wait until the ninth month to develop simply because that is when it makes sense the nails should show up. It literally takes nine months to make a nail. Because how do you take that one drop from the Father, a very powerful drop which comes, which stems from the Father's brain, how does that turn into a nail? You know how much, you know how much of a process that takes to break down that energy? to downgrade it, transform it to even become a toenail. You know why the child's brain develops within three days? You wanna know why? Because it's not a big leap. To take a drop from the father's brain and to create a new brain of the child, that just takes a few days. Brain turn brain. But to make a nail, that takes nine months. It's literally a nine month process. So, this is how it works. If you look at the process, and I'm not a doctor, but if you look it up and you look at what body parts, which, which organs, which limbs are being developed in which month, in which week of pregnancy, the further along it's being developed, it's an indicator this part of the body is a further downgrade, is an even more radical transformation of the original seed, which was the child's original identity. So there's a lot going on in, in, in pregnancy, in the nine months of pregnancy. It's not just you're developing a child, you are transforming the child. That, that, that's, what, that's, what a, that's what the womb of a, of a woman does. It transforms a child from its original identity as a very powerful, indivisible, energy of the brain of the father to create every single last part of the child and it's a downgrade it's a journey it's a very there's a lot going on to break that down and to downgrade and make enable it to transform into every single body part how are we doing so far make sense okay let's continue reading and nevertheless, here's a very important, another point of the, of the analogy. Nevertheless, even in the nail, the drop has only changed in its manifest form. But in terms of inner identity, it remains bound and unified in a wondrous and powerful unity with its original core essence as it existed in the seminal drop rooted in the father's brain. Even though it's a nail, and it took nine months to, to remove it, to transform the original identity of the father, the child's original identity, as a drop from the father's brain, to make it into a nail, yet the nail never lost that identity. And we see this, we see this uh, biologically, right? The DNA of a nail is the exact same DNA as the brain. It's not downgraded which means a core identity is always still there. So even though in manifest form, it really lost its original identity, right? How can you compare 
How can you compare the brain to the nail? There's, there's no comparison. One is a very powerful, important, vital part of the body. And one is, isn't, you know, there's no feeling. There's not much going on. You could cut it off. It grows back. You know, it, it's just, just, just compare the distance. It's the same identity. Last point. Last point. Last bullet point, and this is a very profound bullet point. There's a lot to unpack over here. And even now, in the child, the nails draw their nourishment and energy from the brain in the child's head. Let's think about this. The entire child, every part of the child is, on some level, a downgrade from its original identity. The most radical downgrade, the most extreme downgrade is in the nails. But every part of the body was developed and it lost a little bit of its original identity. There's only one part of the body that is still, so to speak, pure. It retained the, its original identity. It never lost its original identity. What part of the body is that? Brain. The brain. Like we said, within days it develops. It's not much of a downgrade. It's the father's brain becoming the child's brain. And here's the very key thing. That brain will always be the leader of the body. Every part of the body is directed by the brain. Every part of the body receives its nourishment from the brain, right? The brain is literally the headquarters, the nerve center of the entire body. And for the purpose of this analogy, that's very significant. Even though the nail has lost, it's traveled nine months and lost so much of its original identity. It has the original identity, but it's hidden within it. Right? Yeah, the DNA is the same, right? If you, di if you dig deep enough, you'll find that this is really the drop from the father. But it turned into a nail. How could you compare? But it's still in touch with the brain. It's connected with the brain. And the brain retains and has, even in manifest form, that original identity. That's why, even though our body is turned into a multiple, right, there's such diversity within a human body, it still acts as one. The body is still in touch with its original identity as one indivisible core. Which is interesting, right? Even though nine months have passed, and the body went, this child went from being one, literally one, one, one indivisible core into becoming this entire crazy ar array of diverse body parts. Even after birth, when it turned right, that one cell was broken down, turned into billions and trillions of cells. Nonetheless, the body still acts as one. It still has that oneness within it. And who creates the oneness within our body? The brain. Why? Because the brain is, has within it the oneness, the original identity. Okay, that was deep, no? Was that deep? Did I lose you? <laughs> Are you trying to figure out why we're talking about this? We're about to find out. You're about to find out. <laughs> okay, we're about to bring this back to the soul. How are we doing with time?
We're doing okay. Yeah, 20 minutes. Okay, we're about to bring this back to the soul, but first let's bring some sources. For the Alter Rebbe, this is a Torah text. Everything has to everything has to be sourced in Torah. So let's read. So the bottom page 35, we'll read it quickly. We're not gonna get too lost here with the sources, but two two sources, two quotes um, that that teach us about the relationship between even the nail and the original brain and the brain matter, the spiritual brain matter of the father. Let's read. A source for the relationship between the father's drop and the child's nail. Okay, here's source number one. As the Talmud states, it's a clear piece of Talmud, tractate nida, ibid. All right, you can look it up earlier. What's ibid? All right, the footnote tells us it's page 31a, if you want to look it up. The Talmud says the white seed of the father from which tendons, bones, and nails are formed. Talmud clearly says that even the nails are developed from the seed of the father. Okay, and now we're going to get a, a, a Kabbalistic source. And just a very brief, just to give you context of this next paragraph we're going to read. And we're not going to get too lost and talk about it. Okay, just give me the heads up. Okay, the Torah tells us in Genesis, Adam and Eve are created in the Garden of Eden. They commit the sin and they eat from the tree of good and evil. So, yeah, from the tree of knowledge. And the Torah tells us that immediately after the sin, Adam and Eve became self-aware. And they immediately became aware of the fact that they are naked and they wanted to cover themselves. And it says that God created some type of covering for Adam and Eve. Comes along Kabbalah. Now let's read this text. All right, now you have the context. So let's read. An additional source from Kabbalah that offers a mystical connection between nails and the brain. Okay, it says in Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim is a very classical book of Kabbalah. In the section called Shar HaChashmal, it states concerning the secret of Adam's clothes in the Garden of Eden that were attached to his body like nails. Kabbalah tells us that the covering that God created for Adam and Eve were like some form of nail material. And says in this in this book of Eitz Chaim, it says that these nails were spiritually nourished from spiritual mental energy. Again, here we see the connection between nails and nourished from the brain. Okay, we're not going to discuss this too much. If you want, you could look it up in the original Kabbalistic texts. And I wish you much success if you wish to do so. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. Okay, page 36. Where are we going with all this? We have the body. And what do we say about the body? The body begins as an indivisible core, this pure piece of the, from the father's brain. The, the, the child, this drop, turns into this very diverse, full human being. And the cause of that is nine months of pregnancy. But the key point is that even when the body and every specific part of the body turns into something else, is downgraded from piece of, from brain from the father, into even a toenail, it's still always a piece from the father. It never loses that original identity. What does this have to do with brains? What does that, what is this, sorry? What does this have to do with souls? Let's read. Page 36, dear friends. All right? We'll talk about the parallel in the soul. Having depicted in detail how even the lowest parts of a child 
retain a profound connection to the seed and thereby to the brain of the father, Tanya will now clarify how this is mirrored spiritually in terms of the soul. So here we go. The altar ever writes like this, mirroring this precisely, although figuratively, right? This is the analog. Child and father is the analogy. Now we're talking about the analog. That's right. So mirroring this precisely, although figuratively, is the supernal root of the nefesh, ruach, and neshama of all Israel. Nefesh, ruach, and neshama are the three specific dimensions of the soul. So we can now apply this to the soul of every Jew. Whatever we just said about how bodies get developed, how children get developed, that is a story of the Jewish people. And I need to give you one introduction before we read. There's one very critical piece of information that the Alter Rebbe it's the impression you walk out with. Fred is asking a very good question. Very good question. Fred is saying, why am I not discussing the DNA of the mothers that contribute 50% of the child's DNA? Was that was that the pink elephant in the room? Yeah. Okay. It's a very simple answer. No, it, the gray elephant. It's a very, it's a very simple question. It's a very simple answer. The woman's contribution to the child is not step one. It's step two. <laughs> which means, yeah, the, 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 entire, the entire time of pregnancy, which means that's, that's already phase two of the child. Phase one of the child is, is one drop from the father. Step two is where that one drop meets a female, the, the, the contribution of the female the contribution of the female develops it. Now, I'll, I'll tell you something right now, okay? And you may not appreciate this concept right now. And I don't want to talk about it too much right now. You'll appreciate that you'll, you'll, we'll learn more about this concept in chapter three. But I'll tell you like this. We tend to think, and let me know if you agree with me. I think most people think a child is 50-50 mother and father, right? Joint effort, which is true, of course. But is it, is it really the same role? Does the male and the female have the same role in creation of the child? Obviously not. First of all, biologically not, right? We all know that. I think like in dolphins, they like, you know, they're able to both share the development, right? Is that how it works? Or maybe it's just opposites? But they don't, you know, I mean, mother dolphin still feeds the... Right, okay, but in any case, we see clearly, you know, biologically, right? Physiologically, it's a very different role. This is the way Kabbalah sees the role of male and female. And you have to realize male and female is not just in humans, you know, male and female. Male and female is a model that God created the world with. Our brains, our mind, our intellect. There's a male component of our intellect. There's a female component of our intellect. Within God, the way God relates to the world, there's the male aspect of God, the masculine element of God. There's a feminine aspect of God. So, so male and female is a model for all of creation. So what is this model? Male and female are actually very different. They have very different roles and very complementary roles, which means whatever the, male, the male's role is equals to nothing without a female. And whatever the female's role is, no matter, right? It's so powerful, but it equals to nothing without a male component as well. So very briefly, the male component of nature, the way God created the world is that things run on this model of male and female. Male component, male energy, 
in nature, the way God created it, the male, oh, good enough, Shane. Uh, that's a good night. Okay, good enough. Now go open, okay? All right, guys. The male component is the ability of creativity to create something new. The new power, the power to create something new that's masculine. The female power is cultivation, development. Right, physio physiologically, we see that. Biologically, we see that. Right, the male, which means like this. Females make children, of course. The female power is to develop, but on their own, they can't create anything. The male's power is to be the inspiration for something new. But that inspiration on its own can't be developed. Masculine energy does not know how to develop anything. So you see right over there, the male is step one. Female is step two. Jeff is saying a very good point, right? To Fred's point, you could argue the female role is actually a lot more than 50%. You could maybe even say it's 90%. Maybe it's even 99%, right? The male's contribution, right? That's a pretty quick, uh, that's a pretty quick, quick act. That's a very quick moment. The female, it's nine months. So the point is not about whose role is more important for the, for the purpose of this analogy in Tanya. The question is who's number one? The inspiration, the power of something new, the potential for something new, that's step number one, the development is step number two. So over here, the author is trying to contrast the two extremes, the full development of the child and then the step one where the child is simply, is simply this one core which isn't even a child. It's just like this raw piece of energy. Fred, does that answer your question? Who else said they had that question? Joanne, was that you who said they had the question? Stacy, what do you say, Stacy? Are you are you satisfied with the answer, or are you still you still a bit iffy on it? Uh, no, I'm 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 getting there with it. That makes sense. Makes sense. You know, Stacy, I'll tell you something. Okay, I'm not going to say who I recently told this to because I didn't ask his permission to tell his name. <laughs> but I recently told somebody a very good piece of advice when it comes to reading Tanya. Yeah, Fred, 100%. Yeah, step one. Step one is meaningless without the female, 100%. You know, whenever you're learning deep ideas in, 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 in Tanya and in Judaism, many times when you hear it the first time, it's not going to fully settle with you. Maybe you won't agree with it originally. Maybe you won't even understand it initially. And it's very important to, you know, not be too on guard. Not always be thinking, do I agree with this? Do I not agree with this? Do I like it? Do I not like it? No, you have to study with a little bit of, uh, of humility. Allow something deep to enter. You have to process it. You have to think about it. It has to settle in your mind. Maybe in a week it will relate more to you. Maybe, and maybe it'll take another year until you understand it. Maybe only on round two of Tanya will we appreciate it. But we grow by, by learning with, with, with real humility. We have, to, we have to allow deep ideas to enter. Okay, dear friends, we, we, I, I, want to, I want to move forward over here. All right? And we'll have time for more discussion in five or 10 minutes. All right? In five or 10 minutes, it's no... We could, uh, we could talk about anything. We could go off topic. 
Here's what we need to know. The premise of what we're going to be talking about right now is that how many Jews are alive today? 13 billion? 13 million? 13, 14, 12? Even more? We just recently got back to our pre-Holocaust numbers. Then it would be like 18. 18? No, I don't think it's that high. Okay, whatever. But really, and this is even, even the Talmud speaks about this. This is very classical Judaism, but especially when you look in books of Jewish mysticism, it speaks about the Jews. We aren't a Jewish people. We are a Jewish person. What divides us, what seems to make us all separate and different is our bodies. So for, right, for, so from the physical perspective, I look at all of you, and we are all a bunch of separate human beings, right? There's you, there's me, and there. But if you look at it from the soul, we're actually one organism. So there's no Jewish people, we are really a Jewish person. We're really all part of one entity. All right, keep that in mind as we continue reading. Let us take everything we learned about the, about the process, the biological development of a child, we're going to apply that precisely to a soul. Let's read. The first bullet point on page 36. The souls originate from God's wisdom, right? Which is like the brain of the father. And then it descends rung by rung through the chain of the four spiritual worlds, generating a gradual spiritual downgrade within the soul. This descent parallels the nine-month gestation in the womb. All right, friends, let's start applying this. The Jew, right? Which Jew? All of us. We are all the Jew. The, this one entity, this one organism of the Jewish people. Hi, Shana. Okay, you have a mark on you? Go to mommy. This one entity of the Jewish people begins as one indivisible core, a piece of God. Just like a child begins as one indivisible core, a piece of the father. But then there's pregnancy. And pregnancy breaks it up into diversity. It downgrades certain parts of the soul. It downgrades further cells. The soul of the Jewish people also goes through such a process. The nine months of pregnancy on a spiritual level is called the descent through the chain of the four spiritual worlds. Okay, now we're going to learn, we're all going to know a lot about the four spiritual worlds when we get to like chapter 40. But until then, we don't need to be bothered by it. We just need to know the fact there's four spiritual worlds, and you have God on top and us on the bottom. What are these four spiritual worlds? Let's continue reading. The four spiritual worlds are Atsilos, the world of emanation, Berea, the world of creation, Yitzira, the world of formation, and Asiya, the world of action. That's pretty helpful, no? Now you guys know it all. Okay, very simple. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. The chain of worlds begin with God's wisdom. As the verse states, you made them all with wisdom. So what happens? We have two steps so far. The Jewish people begin as a piece of God, one indivisible core, and we go through this process, which is analogous to pregnancy, gestation. Let's continue reading. The result of this spiritual downgrade through the four worlds is that from supernal divine wisdom, right? Brain, brain matter. What happens then is even the nefesh, ruach, and neshama, even the souls 
of simple folk and common people, which are like the nails are formed. Let's explain this. In pregnancy, different body parts get developed in different weeks and different months. And as we discussed earlier, the later on this specific body part is developed is an indication this is a further descent, a further downgrade from the original purity of this child's original identity, right? Same thing happens in souls. At the top of the process, you have one indivisible core, a piece of God. As this one piece of God, the core, the original identity of the Jew goes through the process of the four worlds, it breaks up into specific souls, into specific parts of the body of the Jewish people. Certain souls are developed very early on in the first world, right? the world of Atzilus. And those souls are very holy souls of a very high level because they're developed right away. And as this, this, this process of development continues to go along, souls get developed at certain parts. And the later on a soul, a specific soul of the Jewish people is developed, the lower level soul it is. Until you'll even have a soul which is developed at the last stage of the four worlds. And that's what we'll call, right? Let's use ear, ear, ear quotes the nails of the Jewish people. So have to think about that. The same way our body has 20 or 30 trillion cells, different body parts. Same thing with the Jewish people. There's tremendous diversity. We're all part of one body. Each Jew has their own identity. Each soul has its own identity, its own function. Let's, let's continue reading. Last paragraph for today. But nevertheless, just like a biological child, those souls, which means even the low-level souls, right, that were, that were developed very late in the game, even those souls still remain bound with a wondrous and awesome unity with their original essential source, which is a direct emanation of supernal wisdom. Every Jew never loses their, that core identity. You're a piece of God. We maybe lose it in manifest form. But if you could scrape the DNA of a Jew, it's a pure piece of God. And the same way there was holiness in Moses, every Jew really has that. Let's summarize. On page 37, you'll see a summary of today's class. A table makes it very easy. We have two columns, the child, a soul. And there's four details within these two. Let's go through it quickly. There's the original identity. The original identity of a child is a drop from the father's brain. The original identity of a soul of a Jew is that's a literal piece from God's supernal wisdom. Same thing. Brain matter of the, of the father, brain matter of God. We're all brain matter of God. Okay. But then this original core, the original identity, the original drop goes through. Let's go to the next row. The descent. The descent of the child is the gestation during nine months of pregnancy. The descent for the souls, the descent through the four spiritual worlds. The descent creates the next world, the diversity of the core. The diversity of the core in the child is the complete body from brain matter to toenails. 
and the diversity of the core of the soul is the complete body of the Jewish people, from saintly leaders like the heads down to the simplest Jews. And then the last thing is that there's a unifying power. The unifying power of a child is the head. The head ultimately unites the body and gives everybody its sense of identity, its sense of purpose, and gives everybody the ability to connect with the oneness, with the original core of what it always is and was. And what is it by the soul? We didn't discuss it yet. This last piece of the puzzle is for next class. What's the unifying power of the Jewish people that within the diversity really brings us all together, gives us that identity of who we really are, the oneness that we are, that indivisible core of a, of a piece of God. And with that, dear friends, we conclude today's class. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little story, all right? A quick little joke, quick little joke. Jokes are important. It was once a grammar teacher. <laughs> um, teaching her class about, uh, about grammar. She was teaching them about singular and plural. So the teacher was going through different objects. A cup, singular or plural, singular. Yeah. So the teacher asked one of the students, what's a pair of pants, singular or plural? <laughs> so the kid said, singular on top, plural on bottom. <laughs> so what are souls? Souls are singular on top, plural on bottom. But even when there's plurality, we're still singular on top. There's still a connecting force which brings us all together. So dear friends, and this was a little bit heavy today, but we're gonna, this is a very powerful idea. The implications of this idea are very, very powerful. And we'll continue unpacking these ideas throughout the rest of Tanya. Rabbi? Rabbi? Yes, let's, let's, uh, let's discuss. I, I want to ask you a quick question. So you say the unifying power of the Jewish soul is the oneness of the Jewish people that came, that was created from, from God? We didn't discuss it yet. The unifying power of the Jewish people is, is, uh, is going to be next class. Oh, so we didn't discuss that. I didn't miss right. it. Okay. You didn't miss it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Very good. Very good. Okay, there was there was uh, there was another question over here. <laughs> Yulia is asking a very good question. Doesn't this imply that God is masculine? Right. Today's class definitely does imply that God is masculine. Um, listen, in Jewish texts, we refer to God as a he. Many people wonder why. Meaning, it's it's a very old question because you know we Jews. We just don't let anything just fly. We don't take anything for granted. Why is God a he? Why isn't God a she? So, do you want to hear an answer, Yulia, or you just want the confirmation of that fact? I mean, I kind of think I know the answer, but please, yes. Okay. So here's the answer. That's because Judaism is a very uh, is a very age old religion, and uh, back in the day, people were very patriarchal and very misogynist. So therefore, we just decided that God should be God should be a guy. How does that sound? No, I'm not buying it. You, do you buy that or no? All right, that's that's the that's the cheap that's the uh, not just a cheap answer. That's like a that's a that's, that's a cop out. That's a lousy answer. That's not even allowing yourself to to to. That's that's the type of answer you give that stops yourself from from searching. That's stupid. If that's the answer, it's the answer, but. 
first search. I think for me, it's also a question of interpretation because when we translate, um, you know, when we translate references to a being, we automatically want to assign a gender because we have to refer to that being as a he or she. But the reality is that it's all um, a made up assumption in our minds, right? Like we just chose to assign a particular pronoun to that being. It doesn't really mean that that being has a gender. Oh, so that's so that's so that's another so that's another type of answer that's given, which is in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew language is very not gender neutral. It's it's impossible to be gender neutral in Hebrew. Every word has to choose a gender. Uh, and even words which don't even mean anything, which don't you know, which which even then it's either a masculine word or a feminine word, which is quite fascinating. Grass, the word for grass, is either feminine or masculine in Hebrew. <laughs> Anyways, we'll talk about it another time. If you ever look at like in Rashi and grammar, Rashi is going to want to know why the verse is changing genders. Like we're not even talking about people here. What are you talking about? It's good. So, so uh, this is another, which is again a very cheap answer. Which is listen in the Hebrew language, you got to choose a gender. There's no such thing as speaking about things genderless. So okay, we decide God will be a man. But again, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very shallow answer. So here's the real answer, Yulia. And there's multiple layers of depth over here. And I just want to tell you next year, the fall course is going to be a course dedicated to all the biggest questions about God. And this is going to be one of the big topics discussed. What's God's gender? Why is God a he? You just made that decision, right? No, 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 no. no. He's already got his prediction. This is deep. This is deep in the planning stages already. Okay. It's already in development. You gotta sign up for the class if you want. And you gotta, yeah, you really gotta sign up. This is what I'll tell you, Leah. The first thing to know is that there's two elements within God. There's meaning God is God is neither to your earlier point, Yulia. God is beyond form or shape or a specific construct. I'm saying this is very key Jewish beliefs. Open up a book of Maimonides. He tells you, what do we believe about God? The number one thing I know about God is he has no details. He has no form. He has no so you can't call God male or female. Rather, it's the way God it's a specific form that God uh, uses, employs in his relationship with us. There's at times where there's a certain mode of God interacting with us, interfacing with us as a male with masculine energy, with whatever that means. At times, God interfaces with us as in the feminine form. Specifically, whenever you see the term Shekhinah, Ever heard of the term Shekhinah? God's divine presence? Shekhinah is feminine. Whenever it's Shekhinah, that's already female God. It's not two separate gods. Same God, but interacting with you in a different way. Generally speaking, the way God relates to us is in masculine form. Why? Because the Jewish people are the female. I mean, I know that we've been talking right now, the way in this chapter of Tanya, the way we're discussing the relationship between Jews and God is father and child. But in fact, that's only one, that's, that's one dimension of our relationship. There's also another dimension. There's another way to look at our relationship with God as, as spouses, male and female. In the, in the liturgy of Yom Kippur, we discuss 15 different forms of relationships between God and the Jewish people. Because our relationship is so deep and so multifaceted that no one model of relationship will capture the relationship. So there's king and subjects. There's father and child. Like we say, avinu malkeinu, what does that mean? Our father, our king. Is he both our father, our king? Yes, but not together, meaning it's two separate ways of relating to God. So 
the so one of the big reasons why we relate to God as the He is because in our relationship with God, we are the She. Everybody says, "Why are you always saying about God? He, He, He? Where's the She? You know what the answer is? You're the She. The Jewish people in that relationship, we serve to be the feminine, the feminine energy in our relationship with God, which is quite a deep thing, especially when you understand what is the meaning of feminine energy. Also, the Shabbos bride, right? That's, that's another example of the model of male and female. Right. Six days of the week are male, Shabbos is female. There's deep stuff, Rabbi. We don't speak about a Shabbos king, we speak about the Shabbos queen. Shabbos is very feminine in nature. So, anyways, I don't know if I'm confusing you more, Yulia, or if I'm, or if I'm, giving, you, if I'm giving you some food for thought. But let no, me just tell you something. No, it's good? You confirmed it that really the being that we call God has no gender. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, that's true, 100%. No matter what type of definition or specific form we will ever give God, we have to understand that God is not limited by that form. That would actually be quite heretical. That would be blasphemous. <laughs> um, rather, the way we describe God is the way he's, he's interfacing with his creations. So generally speaking, the way God re relates and interacts with his creation is in male form. Why? Because infinity, oh, this is okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to confuse you right now. But for infinity to relate to finite, infinity has to employ a finite set of tools within which to relate. Anyways, that, that, that's okay, but that's not for now. <laughs> what else? What else, guys? Any other... Fred, what do you say? So you had that question about, about why are we only speaking about the, the relation of the child with the father? Did we answer that question? Is Fred still here? Yeah, Fred's still here. You're staying quiet, Fred? He's not even there. Fred left the room. He tested. Oh, he's here. He's got it. Yeah, Shana, now I can come back. You got to go schluffy, though, Shana. You want to go in five minutes? Waiting for you. <laughs> yes. It's really cool. Who's there? Who's there? All right, guys. I just want to tell you. I want to let you know. I would love for you to join me in person. Not if, not if it's, uh, not if you're living in Chicago, friend. <laughs> and not if you are, and not if. Um, one day. One day. One day, and 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 meaning, Zoom is Zoom is always going to be an option, but it would be wonderful. You know, in person makes makes better conversations. It's yeah. more Hamish. We get to see each other. Good night. Thank you. Good night. All right. So God bless you. Have a wonderful night. Thank you for joining. And next week. Thank you. Next week we'll continue. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you, Rabbi. Your daughter is gorgeous. Thank you, Hillary. How you doing, Hillary? I'm well, Rabbi. Thank you very much. Tomorrow. You're wonderful. Are you in the video? Yeah, you're in the video. Shayna in the video. Okay. I'm going to tell Shayna's in the video.